This is Mission.org. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Marketing Trends and the Leeds Art Week. GradCon has been called a near-perfect example of what a tech company CMO should look like. He's a noble studier of his craft and a history savant, but most importantly, he's an ad man to his core. Grad joined Marketing Trends and discussed his love of marketing, his days as CMO for Microsoft US, and why the industry is undergoing a renaissance. Enjoy this conversation. Marketing Trends podcast is brought to you by Salesforce. We bring marketing and engagement together. Learn more at salesforce.com slash marketing. Here is your host, Ian Faison. Welcome to Marketing Trends. I'm Ian Faison, host of Marketing Trends. And today we are joined by special guest, Grad, what's going on? Yeah, it's uh, really boring. Yeah, this uh, this last couple of months, not really uh, not really sure what to do anymore. Just It's just so plain. Um, yeah. Yeah, there's nothing. I mean, the, the thing—the thing I was talking to someone this morning. I was saying, you know, I had a really awesome marketing plan like two months ago, and I've got a new awesome marketing plan now. But you know, it keeps changing, and uh, the dynamic nature of the environment we live in today is pretty exciting. Uh, it's a really—it's always a great time to be a marketer, in my opinion. It's the greatest job in the world, but uh, this is the best time of any time because the new opportunities are being created right, left, and center. Yeah, and in today's episode, we're going to talk about. Um, you know, your career, we're going to talk some Microsoft stuff. Um, we're going to talk about what you got going on at Sprinkler and hashtag Sprinkler life. Um, but first, I want to know, how did you get started in marketing? Well, you know, my father was a madman. Uh, he uh, worked on Madison Avenue at Young and Rubicam uh, in the 1960s and 70s. And, you know, had a career that was in other cities after that. But, you know, he was like right at the heart of it then. I uh, had some amazing adventures and stories and he used to take me into the office and uh, I'd go in there and walk around and think, oh my gosh, this is what I want to do when I grow up. And the very first book he gave me to read was a book called Scientific Advertising by Claude Hopkins. And Claude Hopkins is generally regarded as sort of the father of advertising, father of demand gen, and generally the first person to really... Um, think of advertising and marketing as a selling function and really be able to, to make advertising work. Uh, he worked for Albert Lasker. And if you ever, if you have time to read scientific advertising, you should read it. Uh, there's a great book about Albert Lasker called the man who sold America. And he actually invented political advertising, invented orange juice. He invented the feminine hygiene category. He was an amazing advertising person as well. And so, I fell in love with that period of time and I always thought one day, you know, I'll work in that industry. So I, and I almost, you know, my, my life's goal for a long time was just to get a job at Ogilvy and Mather. I was, which is now Ogilvy. Uh, but as I was, that was it. That was the only thing I wanted in my life. And when I was leaving, uh, graduating from school, going through placement services, I just applied at Ogilvy. And then my, my girlfriend at the time said, Hey, you know, just one application to just one company, really? Like, why don't you throw a few in, like, you know, Procter & Gamble and Nabisco and a few others, you know, Unilever. And so I kind of grudgingly did that, got an offer at P&G uh, and, uh, you know, and got an offer from Ogilvy. So I did, I did actually achieve my goal. And I was at Ogilvy because I was torn because I was kind of digging this P&G stuff too, unexpectedly. And uh, 
Don Richardson, who was the managing director there, said to me, he said, you can always come to Ogilvy, but you've got one shot to go to Procter & Gamble, and that's right out of school because they were a promote from within culture. And at that point in time, everyone who started at P&G had to start out of school. And Don said, you know, I went to P&G. I was there for a few years. I learned a ton. And he said, I'll hire you in a couple of years. I'll hire you in a year, like whatever. But you go there, you'll learn a ton, and you can go do anything you want anywhere else. And he was right about the second part. You know, I, I, I have been able to do a lot of very interesting things. And I do credit my P&G education with that. I mean, it was the best decision I ever made was going to Procter & Gamble. It's, it was an incredible experience, and I'll never – never can never sort of repay them or be grateful enough. The irony, of course, is I never did make it to Ogilvy. <laughs> and so, and I, I don't see how that even happens now because it's not even, not even really a business anymore. The agency field's kind of, kind of disappearing pretty quickly. But um, so all that, that particular dream, uh, while I sort of knocked on the door, I didn't quite walk through it. So, uh, but I'm very, very, very happy with what has happened to me and what's transpired over the course of my career. That's incredible. So there are not a lot of people who had parents that were actually, you know, on Madison Avenue that that went into marketing. I mean, that's like big shoes to fill, right? Yeah. Well, it's like my my dad looks at that TV series, you know, Mad Men. He looks at it as a documentary. Um, uh, although he's just surprised at how how light 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 a drinker they are. <laughs> <laughs> He uses a word I can't really use on this one. He basically, he's like, no, nah, no, nah, come on. Pull it together. Get some real drinking done. Uh, but no, he, he had a great time. I mean, he was there during the heyday. And it's all, there's, there's like, it's always fun. I was always, I was always jealous of my dad in a way because it's very unique. Uh, and it's super fun to be in an industry at the dawn of the industry. Is you're forming rules, yeah, you're creating totally. things. And, and so, and I was always like, God, man, because by, by the time I got into marketing and advertising, you know, in the, in the uh, late eighties, it was, you know, it wasn't quite so many three martini lunches and stuff. Like we were just like, cranking stuff out and making things happen. You know, a lot of the really cool sort of crazy stuff that they've been doing, it sort of worked not worked. And so there's more formulaic. And, and so I'd always, I always felt like I kind of missed it. You know, I was like, damn, you know, I like you read Albert Lasker's books or Claude Hopkins books and they were inventing the field. And I was like, wow, that would have been amazing. And then my dad was, you know, there was, it was the TV time. I was like, ah, oh, it would have been amazing. And I was just kind of like, you know, dum -de -dum -de -dum. and then the web came along. And uh, when it, uh, I downloaded the uh, NCSA Mosaic browser in February 94 and I quit by the end of that week. I quit PNG by the end of the week. Because uh, I thought, this is it. Like, this is my thing that I can do. Yeah. And then I ended up doing like five startups over a dozen years. Uh, got myself technical enough that I could actually get hired by Microsoft Research. So I went to Microsoft Research uh, in uh, 2006 and was there for about five years. And then was sort of still markety enough and still technical enough that I could be a CMO. Because CMO, the CMO role, what's kind of interesting about that role is it's a role that's become someone who needs to be somewhat technical, uh, so at least comfortable with that and, and, or, you know, dangerous yeah. enough to know a little bit. And, uh, and someone who just still understands marketing and persuasion and, you know, human psychology. And so that's a little bit of a opposite mix. 
and I've been lucky enough to kind of get that mix and it's been super helpful for me. So I can, I can drive a product strategy, work really well with product and engineering people. And I can, you know, drive a creative strategy and work really well with creative and sort of design people. And that I like that part of my job. I like being able to be in one meeting that's technical and one meeting that's creative and one meeting that's analytical and one meeting that's strategic. Like to me, that, that gets me, um, that gets me up in the morning. Someone asked me recently, they said, you know, what's your superpower? I, I don't love that question. And I don't, I don't personally ask that question in interviews and stuff, but this person was just, we just jamming on some stuff. And they said, what's your superpower, Grad? And I thought, you know, I think my superpower might be that I get bored really easily. So <laughs> I think yeah. that might be my superpower because it kind of like, I have a lot of interest. I can look around a lot. And as a marketer, you, you're, you're well served to be a generalist with a lot of interests and, you know, a lot of passion around a lot of different things. Well, it seems to me that, you know, you are clearly a student of history. And I think that part of the thing for marketing that's been so helpful for the great marketers is to be a student of history, to be a student of, you know, humanity and empathy and those sort of things, but not being draconian in the tools that you go about doing that. Like, I think that that, you know, if you were to like kind of miscategorize like the madmen um, genre as something, it would probably be that like, they were not excited about like, the mediums, although the mediums all became, you know, super important and were, were constantly evolving at that time. It was, you know, the classic medium is the message thing um, that they were more excited about. And I think that that's what you see with marketers now where I think sometimes because there are so many channels, there's so many opportunities, there's so many different ways to uh, spend your money with headcount and people and everything that you can really get so far into the weeds um, and your marketing team could just be almost one function if that's the function that you grew up in, right? If you're a growth marketer, you're just doing that. If you're, you know, a brand marketer, you're just doing that. If you're a, you know, demand, if you grew up in demand gen, that you're just doing that. And I think that, you know, this idea of like the, the, the five tool prospect um, in baseball is like the five tool prospect in marketing. Um, is really it couldn't exist. Like I don't know how you could have it exist. We're we have a uh, CMO friend who is interviewing and now is a public public CMO, and they're saying that like every single turn it was like, well, you don't have public CMO experience, and she's like, yeah, but how would I ever get that? <laughs> like if I don't, if all of you say that exact thing, so um, it, it's I think it's a really interesting time where you see people that are like hyper hyper targeted and good at one specific function of marketing because that's where they grew up. Yeah, that's an interesting question. So let me break that down a tiny bit. So I do, I do love history, actually, and I, I do read a lot of history. Um, not because I, I think it repeats itself, that's a popular expression, but I, I do think that the themes of history repeat themselves. History itself never quite repeats itself. Um, like I just... For example, politically, over the last three and a half years, um, there have been frequent, there's a, it was not as quite as common right now, but for the first two or three years of the Trump administration, and, uh, and I'm not going to get into politics or whatever my politics are. I'm, I'm originally a Canadian, so you can probably guess 
Um, cause you know, <laughs> you know right wing Canadian is a uh, you know, far left Democrat here. Um, but, uh, but I think that the, it was interesting to me that so many people would sort of constantly compare, um, sort of the rise of say the Nazi party to the you know, election of the Republican president. And, and I found it, it was so focused on repetition that it ended up losing impact. And I think generally those were pretty ineffective communications because they were too extreme, right? And, and they weren't exactly right. And you could draw all sorts of alternative contrasts and stuff. But I think themes in history do repeat themselves. And, and trends in history repeat themselves. And so um, there's a fantastic book. I mean, it's, it's actually, it's, and I'm not the person saying this, Bill Gates, this is Bill Gates' favorite book, okay? Called My Years at General Motors. It's by Alfred Sloan, like, like Sloan Kettering and Sloan, you know, Sloan School of Business at MIT, that Sloan. And he was uh, the CEO of General Motors from the early 1930s through the mid-1960s. And by the time that he retired from General Motors, it was the world's largest industrial enterprise. And there was actually an expression in the mid-60s that what's good for General Motors is good for America, right? So it was kind of a, that was a, that was, people don't, I don't think remember that expression anymore, but that was like a thing. And then it was also a thing because it was true. <laughs> so, and so they, you know, he created this incredible enterprise. And the, the story of that, and, and, you, and you, when you, if you read the book, he wrote it like a biography. And he was highly criticized at the time for the book, uh, which he wrote in the late 60s, because he writes it like a biography, but there's no mention of his family or like, you know, going to school or like anything personal at all. But he wasn't trying to write it as a personal biography. He was trying to write it as a biography of his years at General Motors, which is the title of the book. And he wrote it as a handbook for his managers, you know, the, his leadership team, so they would understand the, the journey that he went through and they could apply the same lessons. Uh, which they, you know, studiously went about not doing. And of course, General Motors is not really the entity it used to be anymore. And so, um, and so if he, if you sort of look at his history, the way he talks about it is it's this history of innovation, but the innovations that they were trying to come up with were a lot around standardization. So for example, there was no standard for gasoline, like what was regular gasoline? It was all over the map. And sometimes it would blow your engine up and sometimes it wouldn't start. Uh, they couldn't find tires that would stay inflated for more than 10, 20 miles. That's when you see old cars, they'll have like four or five spares in the back. They were using them. Like <laughs> those, those were active spares. They were using those spares. Uh, just to go on like a country, country Sunday ride, you'd be going through spares the whole time. Quick aside on that. So my, my dad uh, is much older and... Uh, he he told me that in the summers that my my grandma and grandfather used to drive to Yosemite and and and, right. and camp in the valley from from Oakland because she she was born in Oakland as well and I'm like they drove to the valley to Yosemite Valley in a like 1936 like Studebaker or something like how did you do that. Like, I don't even understand how that's possible. Did that take like, you know, 15 hours or whatever? It's just funny to think about those sort of things that like, um, that we don't even, you know, riding a car is like completely different than it was then. Anyways, I digress. Well, it's all relative, right? Like compared to taking a horse and carriage, it probably seemed pretty damn, pretty damn comfortable, yeah. right? But today, you're like, whoa, that's bananas. I'm not doing that in Duesenberg. Um, But anyway, so then, and they were like looking for things like, um, 
uh, paint. Like, so the only reason that all the cars were black in the 1920s is black paint was the only paint they could get that would adhere to metal. So there's this massive R&D effort to find uh, multicolored paints that would adhere to metal. That was like a big revolution. And we don't even think about that now. It's like, just, we don't even know why were they all black? It's because that was the only paint that they could get to work, right? And the list goes on and on and on. The other thing though, that he talks about in that book is this balance between vertical and horizontal strategic inflections. And so in the early days of any industry, the right way to operate is to be vertically integrated. So Henry Ford, who you know obviously created the sort of modern auto industry, uh, Henry Ford owned his own forests. He owned his own gum plantations for rubber. He owned oh, it was a massive one in Brazil. It's still there. Uh, he owned his own uh, mines, you know, for iron ore. Like he was fully vertically integrated. He produced and created every single part of his cars. And in the early days of an industry, that's what you need because you can't rely on external standardization because they didn't exist. Like well, my point being, all these other standards had not yet been created. So you had to basically sort of control all the elements of the input in order to create a product that would have enough quality that would function. And Ford did a very good job of creating a high quality car at a very low price and you know, revolutionized America and eventually the rest of the world. Um, where GM did is GM came along a bit later and by the time GM came along, an industry existed. So there was a service industry that grew up around all the Model Ts and the cars that Ford had created. And when GM looked around, they said, huh, there's enough of an industry now that we don't need to actually vertically integrate the way he has. What we'll do is we'll horizontally uh, integrate. And what we'll do is we'll create a platform that other people can contribute to. And this is a creation of the supplier network, which is the way cars are made today. And that proved to be a superior strategy because it was more flexible and nimble. GM could offer more models, more variety, uh, and start to innovate more rapidly. And so the key innovation, and this, I, this always still blows my mind, but to think about this for a second, the big innovation that GM had that pulled them ahead of Ford, you know, and somewhat permanently, was the Chevrolet sedan, which was the first car that had windows and could, you could close the door and be enclosed. All the cars produced up to that point in time were open cars. I mean, it's almost like hilarious when you think about it. And obviously a closed car has a significant advantage versus an open car in different types of weather. And so yeah. it was only, oh, that car took off. That's what made Chevrolet Chevrolet. And then forced Ford to stop his line, cease producing the Model T, and then he produced the Model A. But it took him an entire year to retool. There were no Fords offered for sale for an entire year, and Ford never caught up again. And their vertically integrated strategy was kind of a continuing weakness for them. And so, so that's like, okay, that's, but that's been done. Like that, you're not going to learn. There's probably not a new strategy in the auto industry based on that. But, you know, how has that been repeating itself in the computer industry? Well, think about Apple. In the early days, Apple was essentially a Ford strategy. It was a vertical uh, standardization strategy. And what did Microsoft do? Microsoft came along and took advantage of the horizontalization that was happening in computers and offered the operating system as a separate component from the hardware. That was a revolutionary idea. And, you know, Microsoft today is still the world's largest enterprise. And I would argue potentially that what's good for Microsoft is good for America. Uh, and so, but then, and Apple stayed on their vertical strategy and they never wavered to the point where they almost went out of business, right? The only thing that saved Apple in the late 90s was Steve Ballmer wrote a $150 million check to, um, to Steve Jobs and saved Apple from imminent bankruptcy, right? So if it wasn't for Microsoft, Apple would have gone under. And Microsoft did it for maybe probably good and maybe bad reasons. Good reasons being it's always like nice to, you know, 
you know, pay forward. And then maybe the other thing was, you know, would have been problematic to be the only OS, right? So you wanted to make sure there was some uh, other sure. other competition out there from a from an SEC standpoint. But anyway, so they so they so that happened. Uh, Apple did survive that because then Apple discovered the next thing. The next thing was digital music. Now it just so happens that digital music is very complicated because you need to get a song, you need to work with studios uh, or you know recording studios. You needed to be able to have people download that. You need to have it on a player. You need to be able to sync it with a computer. And there's a reasonable sync is a very hard thing for computers to do, and it's still very hard. And and so that benefited from a vertically integrated strategy. Meanwhile, Microsoft, who had had such success being horizontal in the OS area, had taken a horizontal approach in music. And it was failing ridiculously because it never worked properly because they didn't control enough components and nothing ever really worked. They tried to create standards, but the standards didn't stick and there's always variation. And so they couldn't really get those players to work. And Apple came along with the iPod and they blew that market out of the water and then marched on to the next thing. And the, the brilliance of Steve Jobs' strategy in the late 90s was this idea of the home being a digital hub and a digital entertainment hub created the need for vertical strategy again. And Microsoft never really figured that one out. Now, Microsoft's done a lot of other amazing things. So, I mean, I love Microsoft, so, but never figured music out, never figured entertainment out. And so, this, so what, what that tells you, though, is that every industry goes through these phases of vertical and horizontal strategic inflections. And so, as you're looking at a new industry or as you're in an industry, you, also want, you always want to think, where is this industry from a vertical or horizontal inflection standpoint? That's why it's interesting studying history. So it's not so much that, you know, you're going to like, oh, you know, there's a standardization of gas that's going to happen. It's like you got to think about the overall sort of Uber strategy. And I think in marketing, what's been interesting for me is there's this, this, general, um, this general attitude people have towards new channels, which I find just almost irritatingly repeated over a very long period of time. So when my father started Young and Rubicam, he was um, – uh, he was assigned to this, like the, he was like the new guy, right? Young guy, you know, and he's kind of had red hair. He was kind of crazy. And, and they, uh, they always put him on new brands and stuff. And so he was like in the new teams. Right. And so when he walked into YNR, there was the advertising group and the advertising group handled, you know, magazines, uh, out of home, uh, you know, like billboards and stuff like that. Um, uh, radio was really big. Newspapers are really big, all that kind of stuff. Right. And then on a different floor, like in a corner, you know, it's sort of in some kind of spare furniture and stuff like that. They had this sort of group called like, called the TV group. Okay. <laughs> Cause like TV was seen as this like, ah, we can't really measure it. doesn't have coupons. Does it really work? It's kind of like, eh, it's kind of a new thing. And so they were like over there in the corner and there were a bunch of kind of long haired, crazy kids, you know, probably smoking dope. And that was, but that was kind of the TV team. Okay. So fast forward, I worked for, or for a while at gray advertising. Uh, and, um, I walked into gray, I'd been doing a bunch of startups and I, it was, you know, 2002, it was a rough time to kind of raise money and stuff. And so I thought I'd take a little bit of a break and scratch my advertising itch and went into gray and I was, uh, the head of the gray interactive team, which was the web team. And so similar to my father, there was an advertising group and the advertising group was, you know, print out of home, newspaper, radio, and now TV was a part of that. And then my team, the web team, was like literally on a different floor with literally our own receptionist. 
wasn't even part of the main team, right? And whenever they did a pitch, the pitch would be like the advertising pitch. And then we would be like this adjunct who kind of kind of come on with this extra web strategy because this web thing, I don't know, may or may not be a thing. I don't know how to measure it. We didn't really know how it worked. And this is like only 2002. It's not that long ago. I mean, it's a few years ago, but it's not that. It's not like, it's not like 100, 150 years ago, right? It's just yesterday, really. And so, and so obviously, you know, you know. So now fast forward to today, you know, when I was at Microsoft, I, uh, I, I was a CMO for the US, U.S. company. And so we had, you know, we had an advertising team uh, who were handling, you know, print and out of home and newspaper and radio, like, you know, and, and TV, right? And, uh, and web, of course. I mean, obviously, we had a website and it was, you know, highly optimized. And then I started the social team. <laughs> and and yeah. so I wasn't even allowed to put the social team in a Microsoft facility. I had to rent space separately, not Microsoft space. And we had to be off campus in another building, near campus, but off campus in another building. And it was a bunch of crazy kids with long hair and they were smoking dope because, you know, it was legal and because and Washington State and they're all covered in tattoos. Like it's the same, not that different from my dad's experience, right? But now it's the social thing. And like, I don't know what the next one's going to be, but someone will be telling this story 20 years from now and they're going to be like, I walked in the advertising team and it was, you know, print and at home and radio and newspaper and TV and web and social. And over in the corner was the eyeball projection team or whatever the, whatever the going to be right yeah and, yeah, that, yeah and this this inability of the industry to completely understand to, to embrace new things i feel like i've always had this tiny advantage because i see a new thing and i jump on it uh whereas a lot of people resist it for a long time and i think at their at their peril because this goes to your point which is ultimately people over specialize and they become like a tv person and then people aren't really doing tv anymore well I'm a TV person. Well, no, you're not. You're an unemployed person, right? Uh, or I'm a web person. Well, really, just a web person. You can't do social stuff. Like you gotta be thinking about. I'm a seller who uses scale tools, and you give me a tool, and I'll figure out how to sell on it. And that's that's got to be your mindset as a marketer. Any marketer who starts to think of themselves in a channel specific way is is asking to be um, put out of work. And and then what's fascinating to me is this Facebook generation, there's a whole generation of marketers in the last sort of five, six years who grew up just marketing on Facebook. And over the last couple of years with all the new changes in privacy and all the new changes in the rules that have happened there, a lot of them don't know what to do anymore. And they don't know how to use any other channels and they can't think about other new channels that are coming out. And so they get, they're lost because they learned one thing, they have to know how to do it and now they don't know what to do next. Well, and that's just it, right? I mean, that that is the rub because never before in history have we had the this you know obviously technology explosion but technology is fads right like things become in vogue and out of vogue apps become extremely popular and then not not popular the beauty of of television was that you could you know hit a large swath of people. You weren't just betting on like, oh, I think this 60 minute thing's going to shake out and I'm going to bet on, you know, I'm going to become a 60 minutes marketer. You know what I mean? Like it, there, there wasn't a way to, uh, to go a mile deep onto certain of, of the fads like that. It was more, you know, content driven. And now, you know, I mean, you think of how much marketing certain companies do. I mean, I think, what was it? There's like, there's like a handful of like, there's like 10 companies who spend over a billion dollars a year just on AdWords and it's like 90% of their budget. 
and and there's one company particularly uh, i think it's I, I I don't even know if it's publicly available, but that um, literally their entire marketing budget is just adverse, their whole, you know, multi-billion dollar business. So it, it's just, it is a fascinating time and, and change is constant. Um, you know, I'm curious, so why were you so excited to, to join Sprinkler and what does chief experience and marketing officer mean? As part of that answer on Sprinkler, I do actually want to address your comment about fads. I'm not actually sure that fads is quite the right way to characterize it Um, because we are continuously adding new communication channels. So if you read Claude Hopkins' book, right, if you read scientific advertising, he will literally talk about the explosion of channels and he will literally talk about too much advertising and too many messages and too much clutter. Like all the same things that people complain about today, he was talking about 1920s, right? So it's all relative, right? And and it just, I'm always a little bit kind of, I'm always a little resistant to anything that's never before, or if it's it's not never before. We've, I'm sure there's somebody in Roman times that's like, man, what's with all this wall stuff, all these wall drawings, like it's driving us crazy, like all these advertising. So. You have to be careful with that a little bit. I mean, like MySpace, you know, like Snapchat, you have certain applications that literally can explode overnight, TikTok, you know, Vine. And then like years later, I mean, if you had said like, hey, we're just going to become the world's best Vine advertiser, like, and all you did was spend every second, you know, trying to figure out how to make viral Vine videos, you would have been out of business. And then by the time TikTok came back around, you'd be good to go again. So yeah, I, that's kind of my my point is like, well, you're you're like you're like the program, not the channel. So, but like, but what's interesting is we still have billboards, right? And we yeah, still yeah, have TV. We still have print. We still have newspapers. You know, we have like nothing's really gone away. Um, we still have radio. Like, and it keeps changing, but um, but nothing goes away. We just keep kind of adding. Like the only things that have really gone away would be silent films. They've gone away, and that was a that was an entire art form, and then some media types like you know eight tracks and maybe that's it, maybe cassettes, you know. But even albums, you know, well, vinyl albums are out selling DVDs now, or CDs now. So so there's but there's what I think is interesting about humanity is that um, when we find a way of communicating, we'll tend to keep like we'll really tend to hang on to it. And what's the big change? And this is why I joined Sprinkler. The big change that's occurred is that the 20th century was primarily characterized by innovation in broadcast media because uh, the telephone was actually invented in the 19th century, right? So the, the big innovations in the 20th century were uh, television. It's a broadcast medium, which is one to many, you know, yeah. uh, radio, one to many. Radio was kind of a 20th century invention. Um, and, you know, although newspapers came from an earlier time, you know, certainly magazines were probably more of a 20th century invention. They existed, but in terms of mass magazines, that was a 20th century invention. That's one to many. Uh, the web is one to many. Um, email has turned into one to many, although it's kind of weird when we think about it. But most email that you get from companies says, you know, no reply at company.com, right? So the email is a, is a, is a, sure. a, a, a outbound messaging medium, not as a two-way, although it's obviously well suited to it. Uh, and so that and that, that that broadcast mentality, I think, still infects marketing to a large extent. If you look at the 21st century, so and literally the dividing line is a pretty bright line because uh, Friendster came out in 2002. Right? It's kind of the first of these. 
but the sort of bright line between 20th and 21st century is that most of the technology invented in the 21st century is uh, two-way. It's conversational media. Uh, and uh, so you think about all the social platforms, think about the messaging platforms like WhatsApp and WeChat and things like that. Uh, think about blogs, forums, things like Reddit, uh, and review sites to a, to a certain extent. And so, so this, this shift from me being told what to think by somebody to me having a conversation about what's true is a very fundamental shift. And I would, I would argue that customers have fully made that shift, but companies have not. And I think there's a couple of reasons why that's happened. I think there's a general lag. I don't know if you follow Mary Meeker, my yeah. huge oh, yeah. Mary Meeker fan. Um, Mary Meeker, if you're listening, one of my dreams is, could we just have coffee? I keep trying to get in there. We'll make it happen. That's what this podcast does. Hopes and dreams. But Mary, Mary Meeker does this thing where she'll identify like when people have sort of migrated to a new channel and when companies start to spend on that new channel in the equivalent way. So my, and she does this all the time. It's kind of constantly pointing out sort of opportunities. And my favorite one, because it's fully baked through now, is that in 2006, the number of eyeballs that were on the web uh, became equal to the number of eyeballs on TV for the first time. And 2006 was the year the TV and the web became equivalent, but not on spend, right? Not on spend, but on eyeballs. So behavior precedes spend, right? And so when do you think it was when the spend became equal between web and TV? Hmm. Uh, and so web counts everything, like it counts Facebook, Google, every advertising. Um, I don't know. I don't think it's yeah, it is. is it there? It's 2016. Took a decade, right? It took 10 years for marketers to adjust their marketing budgets from being primarily TV focused to being primary to being balanced between TV and web, even though 10 years before that they had become balanced. And what she always does is she says, hey, there's an opportunity for the smart company to go in and take a more balanced approach because your competitors are sticking their money against old fashioned stuff that so you can get competitive advantage. And today that's true for mobile. So the, the that gap between spend and essentially eyeballs in yep. mobile is very high. Uh, and a lot of companies are still struggling to think about how to spend in mobile. And so, um, so coming back to Sprinkler, so, I'm, you know, sort of, again, student history kind of thing. I'm just super fascinated whenever there's an inflection point. And you can see that what a couple of things are happening is we move away from broadcast media. People are less willing to listen to broadcast messages. So if you say uh, in broadcast, you typically are like, I want you to think this way about me. And in the absence of anything else, people are like, well, okay. Well, I don't know what I'll say, right? In a conversational media, I will say, this is what I'd like you to think about me. And you're like, well, let me ask you some questions. Let me try to understand that. You know, I'm not sure I believe you. Well, give me some evidence. I mean, examples when that was true. And so in conversational media, you, you sort of have to prove yourself in a different way. The, the analogy I like to use is uh, comedians. Comedians are my favorite communicators. I'm a, I watch a lot of comedy. And Well, yeah, you're Canadian. You're like naturally funny. I don't know why. Yeah, I'll, like every great stand-up is like yeah it's all about Canadian. the accent <laughs> sorry <laughs> i guess not every like half half of half of the great stand-ups the other <laughs> the other half are not canadian but 
I actually have lost a lot of my Canadian accent and my, my girlfriend's from Manhattan. So I'm, I'm actually losing a bit more, more rapidly now, but, but still occasionally I'll throw an A in there and stuff like that, but I'm, I'm getting better. But anyway, so comedians, so comedians are, um, they are uh, wonderful communicators, but you know, imagine that, um, every, imagine if a comedian, you know, did a creative brief like most marketers do. Right. And so a marketing creative brief was typically have, you know, what do you want to, convince people of, right? So the benefit and then the reason why, why that's true. And then your brand character, what, what brand are you trying to communicate? So in a comedian, uh, what's interesting is the brand characters are actually radically different. You know, you have Sam Kinison, you've got very different brand characters. And, um, and so they're all, they come across a different persona. So those are all different. And the reason why, uh, which is kind of the underlying kind of character of it also very, very different. Right. Um, but the, the actual, communication objective is identical for every comedian, which is super interesting. It's maybe the only area where that's true. It's potentially true in B2B, although they don't treat it that way, but it's totally true for comedians. So in comedians, the, the communication objective is typically written to convince the audience that, right? So for comedian, it's to convince the audience that I am funny. That's it. That is their sole objective, right? So if a marketer took that, yeah. right? A marketer in a broadcast mindset, took that, the marketer would take the creative brief and go, okay, great, got it. They go to the stage and they stand up in front of everybody and they'd say, um, <clears throat> I am funny. Cause that's my message, right? I am funny. And I got to repeat it. I know frequency of about seven drives memorability. So I'll get that to seven. I'm funny. Yep. I'm funny. I'm funny. I'm funny. And you start to get one message, right? I'm funny. Like you, you hear my message, right? I'm funny. And then I'll get someone else. Maybe I'll get a testimonial. Grad's funny. You know, maybe I'll hand out some handbills, you know, because multimedia works, right? So Grad's so funny, you know? And so suddenly I have all this like, oh, okay, I got it. I got it. I got it. So you leave that concert and someone will say to you, hey, how was the concert? And you're like, uh, well, you know, uh, he said he was funny. Like you got the message, okay? You don't believe it, right? You do, it has had no impact. What does yeah, a comedian exactly. really yep. do? A comedian yep. stands on the front of the stage and they tell a joke. So they send out a stimulus. When you hear the joke, you laugh, hopefully, you laugh. And while you're laughing, you think to yourself, wow, she's really funny. But you came to that conclusion on your own. She didn't tell you to think that way about her, right? You decided that she's really funny because you're having a reaction that tells you that she's really funny. So it's an honest reaction. So you have a, it's a genuine feeling. Okay, so in that context, you know, you come out after the concert and someone will say, you know, how was the act? And I'm like, oh my gosh, she was hilarious, right? And, and you ever just experience where people will say, oh my, well, like, what were the jokes? Like, what kind of jokes was she telling? And you're like, uh, and you don't, you, know, you don't remember the jokes, right? You're like, there's an octopus and like a mother-in-law and everything's purple, but like you can't, like you can't actually tell, do the act. All you can do is you can genuinely say how the act made you feel. Now, the thing about, then that's conversational marketing. And the thing about that is I can guarantee you that no matter how funny somebody is, you're not going to laugh at every one of her jokes. Almost never, right? And not every joke's going to land. And sometimes you might be offended, you know? And sometimes, and not everyone's going to think she's funny either. I mean, in a room of people could all be laughing. And there's going to be someone sitting there saying, this, this is terrible. I don't like this at all. I don't think it's funny. I don't think it's cool, clever. I don't get it, okay? I just not my thing. And so the, the thing about, and I think the mindset issue for companies is that in the broadcast mindset, where I'm telling you how to think, 
I feel like I have a tremendous amount of control over the message, which is very appealing to a corporate mindset. In conversational marketing, I don't have the same control. And so and I, I take the risk that some people are not going to like it. You were at Microsoft for uh, a good while. And in the middle of your tenure as CMO of uh, the U.S. business, um, you had one of the most uh, influential CEOs and founders uh, in the history of the world stepped down. Um, I'm curious, like, what was it like working with Bill? And then what was it like going through that transition as CMO? That's an interesting question. So, um, so Bill, Bill's an interesting, uh, interesting person. Um, and my first meeting with him was a month in. And uh, it was a multi-hour screaming match uh, with him telling uh, me and my partner. So I was what was called at Microsoft called two in a box. So you'd take two GMs and you'd put them together. Typically, one would be engineering, which was Sean. And one would be sort of product and marketing, which would be myself. And so it was basically a multi-hour screaming match of Bill telling Sean and myself that we were idiots. <laughs> and his favorite expression is, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. That's how he started. That's literally, the first words out of Bill's mouth to me was, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Uh, and, uh, and so, yeah, it was interesting. You know? And he had a big impact on the company because you know, he pushed people really hard. And if you didn't defend and fight back, then, you know, he didn't take your idea seriously because you couldn't defend it. Um, then, you know, he passed on the reins to Steve and then and Steve um, had a very, 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 very difficult job. And I want to explain that in a second. And then Satya sort of took over and I think has brilliantly leveraged the existing culture of Microsoft to morph it into something a little bit newer. And so the, the interesting thing is that, you know, Bill exited um, at a moment in time when the uh, businesses of Microsoft were, were at, the, at their nadir, right? And so they needed at that point to move into a new area. And so I think people are probably aware of this, but let me just point it out for clarity. So it's very unusual for a tech business to be able to leap from one business model to another. Um, Google still search, very vulnerable. And... Um, and they've tried like crazy to get out of it, right? They've tried like crazy to start other things, but they've not been able to build anything similar to their search business. Uh, Microsoft was OS. OS isn't even really a business for them anymore, but that was the business. They made the amazing leap to productivity, yeah. right? Which is still a huge business for them. But that OS to productivity leap, that's like not as common as the people we take it for granted. Like, oh yeah, Microsoft did Office and they did, you know, Windows. That's like really crazy that a company can do two things like that. And what Microsoft's had to do is a third leap. And that third leap is almost unprecedented. There are almost no companies have ever done that. And the third leap was to the cloud. And so I was there from 2006 to 2018, which is essentially beginning of the cloud. Like I was the very, I launched the very first cloud app, Microsoft Health Vault. It was a first cloud app. It was launched at the Virginia Blue facility, which was the first, what is effectively Azure facility, um, called it Blue at the time. It's Azure cooler now. And uh, and so you know, from the very beginning to like where they are now, which is basically a cloud company. And so Steve had the brutal job, the thankless job, of essentially building out the cloud infrastructure for the company and making that transition. And you know, he hid it for a long time underneath Bing. People are like, why are you investing in Bing? He was investing in Bing. He was building out Azure. And I think Steve did an absolutely brilliant job. I think Steve's one of the great 
business leaders in the history of America and probably the most underappreciated. Um, and, um, and, you know, sure, did he make some mistakes? Yeah, okay, show me a single executive who hasn't made some bad bets. But he made an amazing bet, which was the cloud bet that Microsoft made saved the company has put it in a position which is unparalleled. And no one's made three transitions like that before. No one has ever done that. And so then Steve was able to hand off a very functional company to Satya. And Steve also held back a lot of stuff. So my favorite thing about the, the Satya transition, there's one thing Satya did and one thing Steve did. My favorite one was that he, Satya came in CEO and by the end of that first month, we launched the um, office apps into the Apple store, into the Google uh, store for uh, mobile. And those are still the top apps on both the, uh, Android and iOS platforms. And and everyone was like, ah, you know, thank God Satya finally got out these uh, iOS things and and made them happen. And I always think, what did people think happened there? Did they think that Satya coded those things up on a weekend and then sent, sent them out at the end of the month? Of course not. Steve started those projects in 2008. <laughs> the year after the iPhone came out. Yeah. And I had friends who were working on those projects starting in 2008. It took years to build those apps because they were essentially office from scratch in the iOS platform. It's an extremely difficult project and Steve held it back. And actually there's a lot of innovation and a lot of announcements that came out in the first few months of Satya's reign, which were all just held back by Steve and he essentially gifted them to Satya, who could then get a really great momentum behind him. The thing that Satya did, which I also think was brilliant, is he did, did a cultural shift. Because the problem in the culture at Microsoft was that, you know, Microsoft's sort of full of smarty pants, right? And, and there's like, smart people are great and smart people have a, there's a double-edged sword there, right? Which is smart people can be a lot of fun, smart people can be a pain in the ass. And so, the culture had acquired this know-it-all attitude, and it was a know-it-all attitude that was endemic internally and also externally. And it showed up, we showed up that way in front of customers. And customers don't particularly enjoy being told that they don't know what they're doing, and so it had a big impact on us in a negative way. So what Satya did is he said, I gotta change this culture. And it was beautiful because he was from inside it. But what he, what he knew he couldn't do is he couldn't just switch it to something new. He had to stay within the family. And so the, if you think of a coin of a, what you know, smart people value, smart people value being able to show people that they're smart and smart people value learning. That they, they value both things, so two sides of the same coin. And so Satya's very first, very first memo as CEO, he said, we need to shift from being a know-it-all culture to being a learn-it-all culture. And learn-it-all and know it all, very tightly associated, and people were able to make that mental shift. And then and Satya himself modeled it. And he takes like classes at University of Washington, yeah. he's learning all the time, he's reading all the time. And that, that was a wonderful shift because it just, it softened the edges of the company and allowed the company to maintain its integrity as being a bunch of smart people, but also being able to be learners as opposed to having to prove what a bunch of smarty pants they were. And I think that that's been, so that, that it's one of the great business stories. And I will say that it's still a little frustrating to me. It's, I think Microsoft's getting a bit more credit now, but it is frustrating to me that people tend to talk about sort of Google and Facebook and um, sort of the, the, the sort of sexier Valley companies and leave Microsoft out of the equation when what Microsoft has done is so unprecedented and so amazing. And, and three incredible leaders, you think Bill, Steve, Satya, like that's who's ever strung together that kind of set of CEOs. And, and then I'll say it again, I'm repeating myself here, but I'm just going to say one more time. It's like the way Steve has been treated is outrageous. 
And I think that someone has got to write a book about what he really did and how he saved the company and saved the future of the company and saved, you know, millions of jobs and really did an incredible, incredible service to humanity. And he's, I know he's been financially rewarded for it because he's, all his stock is just Microsoft stock, but it's not the same. I mean, he, someone's got to recognize at some point that this guy did something that no one's ever been able to do before. So it's been said that GradCon is a near perfect example of what a tech company CMO should be like. I'm curious, what do you think a tech company CMO should be like? Um, yeah, Tom said that. That was a really nice thing for Tom to say. Um, yeah, what Tom is referring to when he said that is that he, um, I think he was both stunned by how long I had lasted. I think that's mostly mostly his, his take on it because um, sure. it was tricky to keep your job as a CMO for very long. Uh, but uh, but the I think the core of it was that he saw me using technology and using communication channels uh, as as a as a user as well as a um, as exploiter of right, and so the. I think a lot of CMOs don't live the reality of their customers and they don't communicate and write and stuff like that. And so to me, to me, I think that there's, um, it is funny because I do sometimes get sort of blowback on the fact that I run my own blog, right. And, and I have my own opinions. They're not particularly controversial, like, like cool marketing ideas and stuff like that. But, but, um, but it's not, there is like, well, why don't you just, do stuff that's like sprinkler only. And I actually think that to be a really good CMO, you've got to be a learner and you've got to be pushing yourself to look at new things. I just wrote an article for Adweek, uh, which I'll put on my blog. There's a slightly longer version I'm going to put on my blog once the Adweek article is published. Um, but it's about a restaurant in Seattle called Canlis. And uh, Canlis has been doing some very, very interesting things uh, in these pandemic times. And they are you know, doing these interesting things and those are getting picked up and socially amplified. And Canlis is like doing better than ever, which is amazing. Not many restaurants can say that. And so I wrote an article on that. Now, does that have, what does that have to do with Sprinkler? Well, you know, it's got social component to it and stuff like that, but it's not, I'm not selling Sprinkler at all in that article. Uh, in fact, Canlis is not a Sprinkler customer. It just happens to be someone I think is doing a really cool job of connecting product and marketing in a really cool way and leveraging sort of the modern world we live in. And I think that that'll make me, that makes me a better CMO for Sprinkler because I can think about where things are going. I can have broader conversations and I can have um, a more expanded universe in the way I approach things. Um, but not everybody does that. Not everybody can do that. Not everybody thinks that way. And not everybody even accepts that. Some people think that you should just be talking about your company. I think that just, the problem is that it just makes you kind of boring. You know, if, the, if every single thing out of my mouth was sprinkler, 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 um, you wouldn't want to talk to me. You know, just be like, because you know what I'm going to say. You know, like, what do you think of the, what do you think of the, you know, pick your favorite team. What do you think of the Dodgers? You know, Sprinkler. And so I was like, okay, dude, I'm not going to ask you questions anymore. Like, you're wasting my time. And so I think you have to have, you know, broad interests. You have to be able to look afar in the field. And then uh, when I do talk about Sprinkler, you're going to be more willing to listen. Uh, you're going to be, you're going to take it more seriously. Um, you're going to see it's coming from a place of thoughtfulness. You know, we, you know, I didn't go to Sprinkler because I needed a job. I went to Sprinkler because I was their first customer. I'd worked with them for many years. When I moved to New York, I, I wanted to be with people who I believed in. 
and with something that I believed in. Well, so when I tell you that I think Sprinkler could do something to help you, um, you're going to listen to me because I've used it. I'm a user. I use it today, obviously. It's how I run my business. And you can sort of take that seriously. Uh, if I just come across like I'm shilling you and it's just something that I'm selling, then you're just going to be like, you're going to turn me off. And I think today, more than ever, the, going back to the whole conversation about broadcast versus conversations, um, true conversational marketing is that you are a sparkling conversationalist. And when I meet you at a party, if I only just talk about Sprinkler the whole time, you're not going to want to talk to me at the party. And that's what real life is like now, too. Uh, the broadcast mindset is I should just blast out messages about Sprinkler. Um, but that is, you know, a kind of a bankrupt philosophy now. So I think that's sort of where Tom was going. And I, I, that's kind of my philosophy is that to be a good marketer, you need to be a generalist. You need to have a lot of interests and you need to engage across the media that you believe in, that you talk about, and you need to engage your customers where they are. Now, that's hard because we're busy and there's lots of stuff going on and I'm better some weeks than others. And I went through kind of a, a multi-month period over the last year where I, I didn't post a lot because there's a bunch of stuff going on in my life and I just didn't get to it. And you know, that's all right. I mean, the one thing I don't do is I never apologize for frequency. There is the most popular post on blogs. I this is a Boing Boing article. The most popular post on blogs, uh, the most posted post on blogs is a post that says, sorry, I haven't written in a while. <laughs> so I never do that. I never do that. I just, <laughs> I stop, I'll start, whatever it is, I just do it. But it is important to keep going. Do you find that, you know, kind of in your trajectory that, um, you know, if you're going back and, you know, looking at your time as CMO uh, of Microsoft US, I'm sure you had, uh, you know, a huge budget, although probably not as big as people think. Mm -hmm. Everybody always says that. Um, they're always like, it, it was way smaller than you'd think. Um, maybe there's somebody out there who's like, no, trust me, my budget's way bigger than you think. And now, you know, being a company that is uh, a vendor uh, to other CMOs, to marketing teams, being a resource to that, um, how did that kind of shift your mindset? How would you go back and, and, and sell to grad, you know, uh, mm. six years ago? That's an interesting question. So the interesting thing about Microsoft, so the sort of the joke about Microsoft is that Microsoft has really deep pockets. I think that's a true statement. I don't think anyone can argue with that. Um, so Microsoft has really deep pockets, but really short arms. And so and the way that they implement short arms at Microsoft <laughs> is that no one team really gets enough budget to do everything that they need to do. Uh, so you have to partner with other teams. And what it does is it sort of creates this dynamic partnering um, motion inside the company. So my budgets were actually huge, but they were, part, they were put together with lots of other teams. So I had one budget, and my, my customer experience center budget was 34 different budgets. One was mine, and then 33 other groups wow. contributed to it. And the reason the company does that is that if you can create an, the company can't, if the company is very much a marketplace-driven company, it doesn't believe in centralized planning in many ways. So for example, there's no career planning at Microsoft. There's a career site, and if you want a new job at Microsoft, you go find yourself a new job at Microsoft. It's kind of like you just do it. You don't, you don't have to tell your manager. You can just go find a new job. And so, but there's no career path for you. Like they'll just, they'll move you around and stuff if you ask, but you have to kind of drive it yourself, uh, which initially when you first get there is a little terrifying, but ultimately you really like it. Um, the, the budget thing is the same thing, which is if I come up with a really cool idea, 
that I think could benefit a number of different parts of the company, uh, and I can convince them that's a good idea, they'll join in and they'll throw some money in. And so you can build very, very large budgets by driving cooperative motions, which is a good thing for the company. The company wants that. And so that company essentially underfunds everybody in order for people to force themselves to pool together. So that's kind of how it works. And uh, so for me, you know, what's, what's helpful in terms of selling to me is sell me in a way that allows me to convince other teams to join in, right? So the, uh, and, and, how, and understand that I am trying to influence many other people in the process of creating this. And so I think potentially the mistake some vendors make is they make one of two particularly significant errors. One is assuming somehow I control it all. And so they don't make it easy for me to bring in others or show how to bring, bring others in. Or B, they think um, they, they need to sell everyone individually themselves, which is actually the worst part. Because then I find myself sure. being end run yeah. by the same vendor that I'm trying to do a deal with, and that's not good. Uh, so really being able to kind of create an understanding of who your champion is. Uh, so you will have a champion. I would be an example of a champion. Understand who your champion is, and then support that champion to bring others on board. That, that's a not well-practiced skill in B2B selling, something we do do at Sprinkler, though. Our, my CRO is Luca Lazaron probably one of the best, most brilliant CROs in the world. Guy's incredible. Um, one of the great gifts in my life is to work with Luca. And uh, he, he's a fantastic at coaching his team on how to identify and find champions and then how to build champions and how to support champions and how to support them within their organization so that they're able to build organizational momentum. Because we almost exclusively work with large multinational firms at Sprinkler. Um, we don't work with anyone who's less than a billion in revenue. And so inevitably, anyone that we're working with is part of an ecosystem. Uh, and, is, and we have and to be really successful because we, our product helps join silos and helps unify organizations. And we're not going to do a very good job of unifying an organization if we're not working across a number of different organizational boundaries. But we're better to do that with a champion than to try to just randomly call people up on our own. Well, Greg, you're our champion for today because it has been awesome talking to you. Uh, I think that you set the record for least number of questions asked uh, in our question list going into it. Um, which is, uh, which is always means it's a great conversation. Uh, we got to have you back. There's tons of stuff that, uh, that we can bring you back for because, uh, there's just too much, too much good stuff to, uh, to share with our listeners. Happy to do it anytime. And, you know, as, as long as the pandemic continues and my hair continues to grow, you know, you might get my, might get back to shoulder length hair again. So we'll see what happens. <laughs> there's so much about, um, about marketing that is trying to figure out ways to, you know, we had Jonathan Mildenhall, the former CMO of Airbnb, he, he came on the show and said, uh, marketing is about earning a disproportionate share of conversations. Um, and I think it's something that we, you know, you touched on a bunch of times today and like, um, wow, how important is it to, to earn conversations in a time like this where, uh, people's focus is so different than it's ever been. And um, I, I think, you know, you dropped some real knowledge here on that. I will say, so actually, before we get out of here, final thing, we always do a lightning round, fast and easy questions. Um, and and the, the spot is brought to you as always by, by Salesforce. Um, but I do have one lightning round question for you. What's your best advice for a first-time CMO? My best advice for a first-time CMO is to pick a single battle and win it. <laughs> 
stay very focused. It's uh, the, the temptation is to try to fix everything at once because I can tell you everything will be broken. Um, but just pick one and fix it and then you'll get mom- you'll get the permission to do more. Well, that's our lightning fast lightning round for today. Uh, you can go to salesforce.com slash marketing to learn more. Uh, we love them. They've been here since the very beginning of marketing trends. Um, Greg, that's it. That's all we got for today. Any, uh, any final thoughts, anything to, uh, to plug here? No, that's actually really cool. I like that Salesforce because their interface is lightning is doing the lightning round. That's actually very clever. I really like that a lot. I've never heard that before. Uh, yeah, Salesforce is a great partner of ours. You know, Salesforce is my back end, one of the great companies in the, in the world. So that's, that's, that's really neat. You know, I had a really good time and you know, my, my overall lesson for everyone is be a learner and, and, yeah. and you can be a learner one of two, two ways. Like one is you should learn yourself and always be reading new things, absorbing new things. It doesn't have to be about marketing. You can just, be reading, but always be reading, always be learning, but also always be teaching. Uh, because when you teach others, you, you actually turn, tend to learn a thing better yourself. Uh, there's an expression, which is, there's nothing like teaching a thing to learn a thing. And uh, if you're always teaching and you're always learning, uh, you'll never be bored uh, and you'll never be obsolete. And uh, the worst thing in the world is to be bored or obsolete. And those, those are things that are very, very important to avoid in life. And you can become bored and obsolete very young in your career. And so... Yeah. people in that stage very 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 young and it's a it's a terrible waste to see so stay stay on the edge by teaching and learning i love it Cred, thanks again this was awesome we got to have you back soon stay safe marketing trends podcast is brought to you by salesforce discover marketing built on the world's number one crm salesforce Put your customer at the center of every interaction. Automate engagement with each customer and build your marketing strategy around the entire customer journey. Salesforce, we bring marketing and engagement together. Learn more at salesforce.com slash marketing. You have eight seconds to make a connection or risk a click away onto the next topic. The difference lies in your ability to deliver relevant experiences to your audience across devices and across channels. But delivering on a really great experience is impossible without the right people and the right technology. You've got the right people, but your technology choices will make or break someone's experience with your brand. At the center of gravity of your digital experience, Brightspot Content Management System can deliver relevant content, personalized experiences, and cross-channel synergies to create unforgettable brand experiences. So you can be a bright spot in someone's day. Head over to brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends to find out right now. From global crisis to hunger relief efforts, The messages you deliver save lives, inform important decision-making, and help keep communities safe and sound. The speed and scale of your content needs to be delivered faster and on a much larger scale. Brightspot Content Management System has supported some of the world's largest brands to communicate on a global scale. 
from Johnson & Johnson sharing critical information with their customers to helping Whole Foods tell their brand story to a global audience. Brightspot is designed to handle rapid iteration and personalized messages to those you care about most. Learn more at brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends.